Howdy, y'all, and welcome to another episode of the Texas Tolkien Talk podcast. Folks, if you like Tolkien, you've come to the right watering hole. I'm Chad Bornholt, Chad in Texas, and co-hosting with me today is my friend Chad High, or if you like, also Chad in Texas. Thank you, Chad. Well, y'all are in for a treat today because we have a very interesting topic lined up for you to listen and ponder over as our panel of guests discuss and tackle it right here on the Texas Tolkien Talk podcast. And if you want to get on the podcast and be a member of one of our distinguished panels in the near future, our elf friends, as we call them, stay tuned after the discussion and learn how you can be on the podcast. If this is the first time you're tuning in, well, howdy. Here at the Texas Tolkien Talk podcast, we bring in guests from all over the world to talk about the works of J.R.R. Tolkien. This is a podcast where you can take the lead. Any Tolkien topic is fair game. Chad and I moderate a panel of four to five guests who are enthusiastic about Tolkien and his legendarium and have a topic that they not only want to pose to their fellow panelists, but also to you listeners at home. We are so glad that you are tuning in and joining us today. We think it's going to be a really fun and thoughtful discussion. So kick off your shoes and stay a while, and we'll do our best to keep you entertained, or at least from falling asleep for the next half hour or so. Well, it's the job that's never started as takes longest to finish. Yeah, I think we've talked enough. Now let's go ahead and let our Elendili, that is our elf friends, introduce themselves. Let's begin, y'all. Nice to be be here with y'all. Um, Sam Dillon. I, I got into Tolkien when I was um, about 12 years old, I think, is when I started, or 11, because I remember my brother uh, told me about The Hobbit and, and encouraged me to read it. And, you know, it's always been a part of the family. So we've always like made references and stuff. And I started reading The Hobbit when I was old enough to do it myself. And uh, and then, you know, he was reading Lord of the Rings. And I was like, wait, there's more to this. And then you a little jealous, huh? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, no way. It's like, are you talking about the Lord of this ring that, that came up in the book? And and he's like, well, you got to read to find out. And and then unbeknownst to me like shortly after that the movies came out like I had, I had to do a book report and I was just like you know the the structure of the book report was it could be like a movie poster and I was like all right let me do this and I, I started researching and everything and I typed in like you know I was like early days of the internet as well and I was like uh Lord of the Rings movie poster and I started mm-hmm. seeing stuff and I was like wait this looks pretty legit <laughs> and then shortly after that, the movies came out. And, and so it just sort of reinforced that love of the books that I already had. I love this because everybody dates themselves. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, my name is Steve Strickland. Um, I'm excited to be here. I first discovered Tolkien when I was uh, as a senior in college at the University of Texas in Austin. I had to write a senior thesis. I'd been looking for an excuse to read The Lord of the Rings. And so next thing I knew, I was reading The Hobbit, The Lord of the Rings, The Silmarillion, loving it all. Um, I did a, my senior thesis was a 130 page paper on um, The Silmarillion and uh, themes of creation and subcreation in The Silmarillion. I'm Xander Mullins. Uh, I first got into Tolkien when, well, my mother read The Hobbit to me when I was really little, but uh, I didn't really get into it until later when I was probably around 13. Then I really dove into it and have not stopped since. Awesome. 
Hey everyone, I'm excited to be here. My name is Abigail Dixon, and I was introduced to Tolkien when I was really young through The Hobbit, of course. I loved it. I was obsessed with the dwarf runes, and uh, I figured out how to write letters to my friends in dwarf runes, so that was fun. Uh, when I was around 12, I read Lord of the Rings for the first time, and I adored it. Um, I was obsessed with that for probably a year or so. And then I remember for my 14th birthday, I think it was, my parents gave me The Silmarillion, Unfinished Tales, and The Children of Hurin. And I devoured them in a week. And I have been obsessed wholeheartedly ever since. Some highbrow reading there. Okay. All right. So for today's episode, we have Abigail is leading our discussion for today. Abigail, take us away. All right. Well, the topic of discussion I've selected for today is that of the fates of elves and men. In one of his many unfinished letters, Tolkien wrote in regards to the works of his legendarium, here I am only concerned with death as part of the nature, physical and spiritual, of man and with hope without guarantees. And so this will be my focus in discussing the fates of the two kindreds tying into this larger theme of death in relation to the nature of mankind in the real world. Now, before I settle into the nitty gritty details, I will begin by reminding everyone that Eru Iluvatar is the creator or God figure in Tolkien's legendarium. The Ainur are angelic beings, the offspring of Iluvatar's thought of which the Valar and Maiar are a part. And the children of Iluvatar are the elves and men, the firstborn and the followers. And lastly, that Arda is the term for the entire world within time in Tolkien's legendarium. And within Arda, there are the lands of Middle-earth and the undying lands known as Amon, where the Valar dwell. Now that I've presented that little refresher, I will move on to briefly defining the fates of the children of Iluvatar. Elves, the firstborn, are seen as immortal, for they do not die of old age, but are designed to endure for the entirety of Arda. Even upon being slain with the separation of their spirit from their body, their spirit goes to the halls of Mandos and resides there for a time before being permitted, should they so desire, to return to their body. Even in their quote-unquote death, elves do not leave the circles of the world, but are meant to reside in it until the end of time. Meanwhile, men, the followers, do die of old age, and upon their death and the separation of their spirit and body, a man's spirit does not remain in the halls of Mandos, but instead goes beyond the circles of the world and is released from the wariness of time. These are the two fates of the children of Iluvatar, presented in rather simple and condensed terms. I will now move on to discussing the purposes behind the two fates of elves and men. For this portion of material, I have gathered excerpts primarily from two key sources. The first being the 10th volume of the histories of Middle-earth entitled Morgoth's Ring. The second is a draft of a letter Tolkien wrote around 1956, which I have referenced once already. And this is included as letter 181 in the letters of J.R.R. Tolkien. In Morgoth's Ring, Several draft versions of the Ainulindale, the music of the Ainur, can be found in which there is a plethora of information regarding the purposes behind elves and men. In version C of the Ainulindale, an excerpt regarding the elves reads as follows. 
Then Iluvatar spoke and said, Behold, I love the world, and it is a mansion for elves and men, but the elves shall be the fairest of earthly creatures, and they shall have and shall conceive more beauty than all my children, and they shall have greater bliss in this world. Meanwhile, in letter 181, Tolkien wrote, The elves represent, as it were, the artistic, aesthetic, and purely scientific aspects of the humane nature raised to a higher level than is actually seen in men. They also possess a sub-creational or artistic faculty of great excellence. They are therefore immortal, not eternally, but to endure with and within the created world while its story lasts. As for the purposes behind men, I once again return to version C of the Ainulindale. Iluvatar willed that the hearts of men should seek beyond the world and find no rest therein, but they should have a virtue to fashion their life amid the powers and chances of the world beyond the music of the Ainur, which is as fate to all things else. And of their operation, everything should be in shape and deed completed and the world fulfilled unto the last and smallest. In this excerpt, Tolkien lays out that men are not bound to the world nor are they bound completely to the music of the Ainur, but are designed to go beyond the first music and to complete the story of the world. There is a second excerpt from Morgoth's Ring in the conversation between Finrod and Andreth, which articulates this idea beautifully. And it reads, this then I propound was the errand of men, not the followers, but the heirs and fulfillers of all to heal the marring of Arda, already foreshadowed before their devising and to do more as agents of the magnificence of Eru to enlarge the music and surpass the vision of the world. So to summarize their purposes, elves are artists enriching all of Arda with their gifts and thus bringing forth great joy, which otherwise would not exist. Elves are made to live with the world, to endure all of its changes and all of its sufferings, to remember all of its beauty and all of its pain, Men are the guests, but also the heirs, living for a short time within Arda, yet in their lives they are meant to bring and share hope, and are capable of changing, altering, and completing the story of the world, and therefore can bring either great joy or great sorrow in their time within the world. It's very interesting, Abigail. Um, I guess I'll, I'll be the first to, to share my thoughts here. Uh, so... A couple things I was thinking about while Abigail was doing that 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 first reading there is uh, so we know that that men are given the gift of death and and it, it's seen as a gift for them to be able to escape the circles of the world or the weariness of the world. We know that elves have certain gifts that are within the confines of the world. Is there anything that elves receive from Iluvatar that is comparable to this gift that men receive from Iluvatar? What do y'all think about that? Well, I'll go. And I do elaborate on this more in, in my material, but I think elves- Oh, are, I jumped ahead of you. <laughs> no, it's fine. Elves are gifted with this memory um, to remember everything and, and in that memory to share it with others so that they might understand this whole beauty of the world. But, but in that memory, they also carry all of the suffering. 
So they are meant to remember suffering and to share that story of suffering so that others might understand the redemptive beauty that might be found in suffering, but also understand the incredible pain that that the elves endured and that one endures for remembering all of those years of suffering. So memory is is that gift to elves, I think. I like that. There we go. Sam, what about you? Well, uh, what, uh, what made me pause uh, initially, like trying to think of, of situations where, yeah, like what kind of gift they might have that would be comparable to, to mankind's uh, gift. And Abigail, I think that was a great uh, take on it because yeah, it is the memory. But then that also made me think about how like they don't really disseminate their knowledge uh, very often, do they? Like, I guess there, there are those cases in the first age um, uh, when, oh, who was it? The, the, the king of the Noldor. He stumbles upon man and he teaches them how to play music. He, you know, it's like, the, this is something that like he, he did, but it didn't, it wasn't very, I don't think it was um, a common trait among other, yes, Finrod, Finrod did that. Uh, it was not a common trait among other elves to, to want to like seek out people to, to teach and everything. They were, and then later on, um, in other in in, few, in later ages, it seems like they're more than happy to a, you know to to give the knowledge that they have when people come to visit, but they have to get there. You know, they have to get to Rivendell before they do. And so it's not like they're they're out there like um, trying to teach, trying to like keep people because they know that humans have a much shorter lifespan so they know that the memories that they carry from the first age are being forgotten but they're not like actively trying to keep you know like they're visiting these humans to say hey you know just remember that this thing happened and i seem to recall and correct me if i'm wrong but i think there was something where like it it, it was mentioned that i think elves just have very little interest in uh doing that is like i think someone at some point does say that they they just they're they have absolutely no interest in trying to teach people it's they'll do it if people come and ask but they have no interest in and and so that tells me that like yes their gift may be of memory but it's something that they kind of hoard it seems like they don't they don't want other people to to share in that well i would say that as far as uh teaching Teaching, uh, I would agree, but they do seem very uh, open with their music and stories, and uh, they do seem really open to sharing their stories and music of the First Age and all of their accomplishments and uh, the history. As far as the question goes, do elves have comparable a comparable gift? I think the answer is no as far as comparable to the gift of man which is death i think that's almost the point elves are superior in almost every other way to men uh physically spiritually uh but men do have this one thing that elves uh do not have and they uh they want almost 
I think what I think we're going to hear Abigail go forward and and say the things that were the other things that we're thinking on this. The memory that the elves have, it's it's just like the humans don't really see death as being a gift after a while. The elves don't see this extremely long life with all this knowledge that has happened throughout the millennia being a gift either. They've, they've got all these memories and, and as you can see through the years that they don't, no one really learns from their mistakes through all these constant reiterations of problems that come along as much as they try to stop things from reoccurring they still do so i'm uh, i think abigail should continue on with her her discussion sure so now that i have established the fates and the purposes we've talked a little bit about that i want to arrive at the weaknesses and the temptations which each of them face so as was mentioned in the last excerpt I read, um, Arda is marred, meaning that there is evil within the world. And this is due to the reality of the fall, a theme which Tolkien himself described as one of the most important elements to any story. The fall takes place when one who possesses free will within the maker's creation chooses to rebel against their design and therefore fall from their grace and greatly alter not only their lives, but also the lives of those who come afterwards. In Tolkien's works, the fall takes place, place on both macro and micro scales. The fall of Melkor is very much macro, for it created Arda Mard. But on a micro level, individual elves and men are also capable of deviating from their design. The stories of Feanor and the Noldor or the line of Elros and the downfall of Numenor. These are examples of how elves and men can deviate with their free will from their designs and purposes. So what then tempts elves and men in relation to their fate? Before answering this question, I would like to read another excerpt from letter 181. And it reads, elves and men are just different aspects of the humane and represent the problem of death as seen by a finite but willing and self-conscious person. In this mythological world, the elves and men are in their incarnate forms kindred, but in the relation of their spirits, in the world in time, represent different experiments, each of which has its own natural trend and weakness. From this, one can perceive that elves and men can be understood as kinsmen, and their fates are simply two different ways in which one might grapple with death and fate. Given this reality, one can begin to consider how the fates of elves and men can be understood as commentaries on the real world human condition. So now I return to my aforementioned question, and that is what tempts elves and men in relation to their fates? As is said in Morgoth's Ring, in the conversation between Finrod and Andreth, in memory is the great talent of the Eldar, as shall be seen ever more clearly as the ages of this Arda pass, a heavy burden to be, I fear. The reality of the memory of the elves then presents the temptations and weaknesses of wishing to prolong or stop time. 
desiring to prolong their inevitable end by clinging to memory and resisting the present or future. In order to achieve such wishes, however, elves must wield a power to arrest change, which is unnatural to their design and therefore yields consequences. This theme of resisting the progression of time is one which can very much be seen in the real world. We see that throughout history and continuing to present day, people grasp at ideas and traditions of glorified pasts so as to supposedly preserve or maintain wealth, glory, or status, or to avoid further pain. But in doing so, are blind or indifferent to the effects this might have on others. With men and their fate of limited time, we also see temptations for power, which primarily spawn from the fear of death. Again, back to Morgoth's ring and the version C of the Ainulindale, the sons of men indeed leave the world, wherefore they are called the guests or the strangers. Death is their fate and the gift of Iluvatar unto them, which as time wears even the powers shall envy. But Melkor hath cast his shadow upon it and confounded it with darkness and brought forth evil out of good and fear out of hope. It is out of this fear and this darkness that men can then desire to accumulate as much wealth and victory as possible and can be more than willing to disregard the livelihood of their neighbors, brethren, and kin if it might promise a gain in power. An excellent example of this can be found in the downfall of Numenor. When the Numenorians came to fear death and therefore lust for wealth and power, and as a result, they pillaged the lands of Middle-earth and persecuted their own kinsmen. And again, such themes of temptation and corruption can be seen all throughout the history of the real world, with entire families, cities, and countries continuously placing importance on economic growth at the grievous expense of other human lives. So I, th I think that um, the answer to that, to your you show your overall question, Abigail, when you're, you gave us some wonderful examples of elves and men and the wariness of the world. And, and I think I think back to Ardemard and how Ardemard really impacts men and elves differently. And it enhances their desires to escape Ardemard differently. And I think it manifests itself differently. So my question to y'all, not just Abigail, but to everybody is, can we think of any examples of when elves and men are trying to reject the gifts of Iluvatar? Xander. So I was listening uh, to her and she said Numenor. And I think uh, that um, Lothlorien and Numenor are kind of two sides of the elves rejecting and the men rejecting. Uh, Lothlorien and Galadriel her temptation with the ring was to uh, halt progress, halt time, keep everything as it is, to keep everything as it is, and that is what the elves strive for. Uh, where Numenor was the opposite. Well, actually, no, they're pretty much almost the same, uh, but they're also striving against the plan is they were trying to prolong their life. They were trying to not leave the circles of the world. And I think that the two places are good uh, comparisons to each other. 
Well, and I was thinking that um, this may uh, be addressed later on, but uh, uh, in in not so much a negative way of how people or elves try to, um, ch- uh, yeah, change their fate. I guess you know this this uh, going against their nature, I suppose. But those exceptions, I guess, to the rule where you have um, Arwen uh, or Idril, uh, like the, the, these these elves and men who change, who do go against what and, but those are ultimately like those are positive changes uh, that are kind of like even though you yes you have the the Numenorians who sailed west to try to change you know they they pursued longer life and everything even though they had already been granted a a, a, a elongated life more so than what the men on Middle Earth had. And they knew that it's not like they were only relative and saw that they they themselves had you know they could live up to a couple hundred years or whatever. They knew that they could go to Middle Earth and be like, oh wait a minute, these guys are living much shorter lives. We know that we have you know this extra time. But then you know so in the first age, you you have people who, I mean, Arendel is is a good example as well. Like there's so many yeah examples where you know. like elves take on a, a mortal fate or men take on an immortal fate. And it, it, that's not seen that that's not presented in a, in a negative way that they're like, but then, it, you know, that in itself is because they're rewarded for whatever like actions that they like that ultimately led to these changes in their nature. Um, and that's, I guess that's, that's kind of what I'm, uh, those are the examples, you know, like you asked about like examples in the, in the literature and to what, what you're saying, Xander, about like people going against nature and everything. Like, yeah, there are examples, plenty of examples of people going against nature, but I, I still see things of people going against nature in a way to maybe not enlighten because it, it has been one of those things where it's supposed to be like this uh, enlightenment of, of mankind for this merger between the, between the kindreds. Uh, I see it less as an enlightenment as more as like, um, catching you as you fall right because the whole thing is that like as the as the ages progress we're gradually becoming further and further away from the valar and and losing all the all the the piety i suppose and and tolkien had that view then that's very uh well i i I forget the the philosopher's name escapes me but but that is a, a pretty common like catholic view actually and and uh and so i see this like when when shape when when fates are changed it's more kind of like in a way of people are descending elves are descending declining i should say and these few cases where their fates can change there's a way of like you know a step forward while everybody's going you know as as these as these races are taking steps like two steps back you get one step forward and then two steps back, one step forward, you know, so it's a, it's just mitigating a, a gradual decline, but it is a positive change in fate. It does, like, does that sound, does that make any sense to y'all? Yep. It does. Go Steve. Yeah. So I, I think a great example of, of, of a, an Eldar that uh, did not accept their gifts ever, you know, gave back their gift of, uh, you know, limited immortality was, Finway's wife, Muriel, um, Theonor's mother. And, you know, she, so she just grew weary. She lay down and, you know, her, 
her, what do you, how do you pronounce it? Her Faya went to, uh, went to Mandos and, and she would not depart from that. And I, I think Tolkien has written elsewhere about just how wrong that was. I've, I've seen something on it, but it just, just how wrong that was and how harmful it was to Feanor. And it was sort of the beginning of, of the problem of Feanor. Well, and I'm, I'm really glad you brought that up, Steve, because that was something that I was thinking about as well. I have it in my notes, the Baron and Luthien. And, um, but that also reminds me of other discussions that I've, I've heard. And I, like, so I'm, I'm this, I'm not as well read on. And I'm not sure what the, what the canon uh, teaches or what like the general consensus is, but I very much enjoyed the discussion about the possibility that some, uh, some people in elves, uh, the, the Fea can decline the call or maybe get um, hear a different call, I guess. Right. Isn't that the, the, the speculation is that perhaps Melkor could even, or even Sauron, you know, calls upon these souls to like come to him and then he can corrupt them, put them in, in other bodies. And, and these are, you know, this is, I, I learned this, that kind of discussion or I've learned that, that point of view from discussions about like the origins of the dead marshes and, stuff like that like where you know so it does seem like i'm very intrigued by the possibility that it, like these these souls these fea fa are could uh uh not go back to mandos and like refuse the call and and go off and like you know maybe they just don't want to go they they don't want to go to amman they you know or or they were already kind of corrupted when they when they're on middle earth and then when they die and they had to leave they're like no nah, i'm gonna try to find another way to go back and continue doing the you know the grief that i was doing right i think the to the word that tolkien uses in terms of melkor and later morgoth is ensnare i think he uses the word ensnare a lot so it, that that says to me there's some sort of trapping or something like that and not i don't want to veer too off of topic but you all have brought up excellent examples and points I think I would just say to kind of tie it all back to what I initially brought up is that you're all bringing up examples of free will and, and different motivations behind uh, the choices of, of fate. So in the example of Muriel or, you know, the spirits of the elves choosing not to go to the halls of Mandos or Luthien choosing that self-sacrificial choice of becoming mortal to save to try and save Baron, like these are all examples of of different ways in which the free will deals with the fate that they are faced with. So, all right, Abigail, I think we're all excited for your for the, for the third part of your discussion, third part of your of your talk here. Yeah, I'm excited. So, I've addressed the fates, the purposes, and the temptations of both elves and men, and I will now begin my conclusion by reading an excerpt from a letter Tolkien wrote in 1958, and this is letter 208 in the letters of J.R.R. Tolkien. And the excerpt reads, As for a message, I have none really. I was primarily writing an exciting story in an atmosphere and background such as I find personally attractive. But in such a process, inevitably one's own taste and ideas and beliefs are taken up though it is only in reading the work myself, with criticism in mind, that I become aware of the dominance of the theme of death. 
Not that there is any original message in that. Most of human art and thought is similarly preoccupied. But certainly death is not an enemy. The message was the hideous peril of confusing true immortality with limitless serial longevity, freedom from time and clinging to time. The confusion is the work of the enemy and one of the chief causes of human disaster. So if death is not the enemy, what does that mean? Not only in regards to elves and men in Tolkien's legendarium, but what does that mean in regards to the human condition? Within Tolkien's legendarium, it is a constant theme that one should not cling to time as it only leads to the indulgence of self-focused desires. Whereas realizing that one cannot control time and one cannot control death leads to a life lived freely and a life lived for others. Consider the example of Erendil, a representative of both kindreds, being both elf and man, Eldar and Adain. Remember that in his life, he lost his home, his friends, family, he eventually lost his parents, his sons were kidnapped, his wife was almost killed. He lived within a world that was plagued with horrific evil. Erendil could have easily succumbed to the temptations of either elves or men, becoming self-focused, hateful, vengeful, fearful, but instead he chose to set out on a voyage of self-sacrifice with the hope that by doing so, the lives of his kinsmen, both elves and men, might become better. So the enemy, therefore, is not fate, is not death, but is perhaps selfishness. For out of selfishness is bred hatred, fear, falsehood, corruption, and a lust for power. These ideas are then equally as applicable to the real world as they are to Tolkien's legendarium. The fact that time must continue shows that during one's lifetime, the focus and emphasis should not be on accumulating wealth or preserving old traditions at the expense of others. Material wealth and institutional power should not be one's life focus, but rather complete unity community, family, friendship, artistry, love, hope, justice, these things should be the focal points of our lives before death greets us. That's right. That's very interesting. That, you know, that makes me think of uh, one of our discussions in one of our previous episodes, uh, the, the universal truths that Tolkien writes about. Um, what do you guys think about that? Absolutely. It, it absolutely reinforces, this idea reinforces the idea that there are universal truths which we are each called to uphold, and those are unconditional love, the fight for freedom for ourselves and for others, you know, self-sacrificial service for the betterment of others. So absolutely, I think this theme reinforces those ideas of universal truths, which Tolkien consistently re-emphasizes throughout his works. And as you say, like this, the sort of uh, coming together for uh, not the embedderment, the embedderment, yeah, because uh, that that works on a sort of like social level, but then also in the in in even their uh, their 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 works, you know, it's always been 
like when the the example of like when the when the lamps were created it was it was through the 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 combination of of effort from all these different valar and and when some of the greatest works that were created in middle earth were from the combination of elves and dwarves working together and like the, these kinds of things it, it so i i see that as also being like what what you're saying like the, these these universal truths one of yeah being like this uh, uh selflessness like you should share your knowledge and share then is uh represented in some of the things the the victories you know when like the battle of five armies it was so many different creatures coming together to even bjorn the 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 big you know badass loner was like i'll help out and like that was for the betterment of everything you know that so yeah it was is that uh selflessness and and connection that that all these races and people have improves everything so it's you know it's interesting to me to see in in the uh discussion in morgoth's ring between Finrod and Andrath, how how each each race envies the other in a different way. So the the Eldar envy the men because it, you know the Eldar feel like they are bounded by time, they are bounded by art. They are tied to art. So whenever the song ends and art comes to an end, then then they're gone. Their serial, serial longevity lasts only as long as the song of the Ainur, and they see humans as having a way out. And, and actually they have, you know, they have hope in humans. And then, um, and, and humans, they, you know, they just think, well, this is terrible. We're just here. We have such a short life and we need, you know, we need to all learn to appreciate the, the, what we do have and the gifts that we have, I guess. Yeah, that's, that's really interesting, Steve. I, I, I I really do think it comes back to sort of the beginning of our discussion with the con this concept of Artemard and an imperfect an imperfect world and just the toll that it takes on each one of the races in Middle Earth. Like Steve said, they all envy each other for different reasons, and and a lot of what happens in Tolkien's Legendarium is the different kindreds and the different races uh, in within Middle Earth reacting to the actions of the other. Um, and so I think that's, to me, that's one of the universal truths. But that's why it resonates with so many people, because the real world is different groups and just humanity as a whole reacting to the decisions of, of different sectors. I don't know if I worded that correctly, but you know, I, I think I think you'll get my point, right? Maybe. <laughs> right. Yes. Our actions affect others that don't necessarily live in the same city or country that we do but they greatly affect and not just like today or tomorrow but they can affect like 100 years from now yeah definitely i totally understand what you're saying well abigail you we're getting we're getting towards the end of the of our discussion today do you want to do you want to take us home with you got something profound to tell us to take us home or do you want to you want to wrap it up for us here I mean, sure, this discussion has been great. I've really enjoyed everyone's thoughts and commentaries. I guess I would just conclude with the idea that something that we can take from the works of Tolkien is that we are to act selflessly and we are to always aim to serve others and to love one another unconditionally. So I guess that's the ending message I would, I would say. But thanks for having me. This was a lot of fun. 
thanks everybody for coming today. Thank, uh, this has been a fantastic discussion. Chad, what do you think? This has been really good. What do you think about that? Yeah, it's um, there's there's so much said that I was anticipating chiming in a whole lot and everyone else covers everything where I just sit here still and just super impressed with all the, uh, all the original topics and the comments and everything from everyone else. And we hope you listeners at home enjoyed it. Uh, please join us again soon for another great discussion on the Texas Tolkien Talk podcast. Until next time. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Thanks. Bye. See you later. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Texas Tolkien Talk podcast. Our goal is to create a podcast where the voices of Tolkien fans worldwide can be heard, and that means we want to hear from you, and so do all of our listeners. If you want to get on the podcast, you can go to our website at texastolkien.com. Click on the link that says Getting on the Podcast and fill out the simple form with your name, contact info, and topic that you would like to discuss. And I promise we'll make room for you. You can also interact with us on our Facebook page at Texas Tolkien Talk Podcast, where you can see the latest announcements and happenings. If you want to get in touch, you can drop us a line at texastolkientalk at gmail.com. All your thoughts and questions are welcome. Until next time, folks. Namadier.